move to Matthew 19, right where we ended last time we were together. We had talked last time about the issue of marriage, divorce, remarriage after divorce, and uh, spent a lot of time on that. Don't plan on reviewing it. If you'd like to get the details, you can listen to the time we were together last or look at one of the messages I've taught more in depth on that topic previously. Let's move to Matthew 19 and take a look at verse 13. Then were there brought unto him little children, that he should put his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. So what are these parents looking for? I think these parents are looking for some type of miraculous blessing on their children, that if Christ lays his hands on them, the children will have a better life. The children will be guaranteed success. I think that uh, there's definitely a, a strong hope that in some way, not just that my children will meet Jesus, it's not just a matter of the connection, they're hoping my children will walk away benefiting from their time with Jesus, from the prayer Jesus has over the children. Now, do you notice that Jesus doesn't uh, hinder this type of thought? Jesus doesn't say, now, now, you know, just them meeting me doesn't guarantee them anything. He doesn't say, well, if I pray for them, it's not going to guarantee success. In fact, the disciples are the ones that try to push the children away. I don't know that for the same reasons that I'm stating here that, well, Jesus praying for your children doesn't do what you think it does, so don't bother sticking around. I think their reasons were something else because of the rebuke that Jesus Christ has on them. But what a great reminder for us as parents that you can never do wrong by bringing children to Jesus. You could be skeptical that, well, if I bring children to Jesus, will their lives really change? Well, if you don't bring children to Jesus, I can tell you what is likely to happen. So let's bring children to Jesus, not worry about what may happen or may not happen after they meet Jesus. Let's talk about what may happen if they don't meet Jesus. Let's bring them to Jesus. So having said that, the, the remaining lessons you might learn, I think, are probably ones you, you are well familiar with. Parents, grandparents, people are bringing children to Jesus. The disciples literally rebuked them. This is not just a, hey, Jesus is too busy only. This is a, how dare you think that Jesus has time for your children? Uh, don't you understand that Jesus is too busy for your family? Don't you understand that adults have priority over the children? Whatever their rebuke was, it's a pretty harsh word to hear in reference to how they treated these parents. Jesus in verse 14 says, suffer little children and forbid them not to come unto me. So allow, allow the children to come to me. Don't stop them. For of such is the kingdom of heaven. So I think most people, when they read that verse, they, they understand that obviously heaven is full of children, not in the sense of you die as a child, you go to heaven, and you never grow older, because um, I believe that when you die, you're a spiritual being until we're given our new bodies, which is at the, the event of the rapture, when our mortal bodies that are decayed and gone are renewed to a perfect body and reconnected to us. You ever considered how that might look, by the way? You know, people joke around about, well, what happens? I, one, one comedian, I forget his name, he joked, you know, I have someone else's, uh, some bone or something. He says, I hope that, you know, they weren't saved because if they were, my leg's going to go up to heaven before I do. And so people joked around about how that might look. But, you know, forget the whole you have someone else's bone in your body. People who died 2,000, 3,000 years ago, like their pieces of them are scattered throughout all over the world. Uh, literally have been consumed by animals at this point, and ve vegetation and shrubbery has benefited from their decayed body. And who knows where that's all at? So 
that is going to be quite an event, Christ gathering all of whatever he intends to gather to renew and create a new body. Then, however that looks, we're going to have a new body, and I don't believe God's going to assign a little tiny baby body to the babies who died young, or a little child body to the children who died. I believe there is a perfect body given to all, and as far as age goes, couldn't tell you whatever that perfect age is. Don't ask that one fellow on CNN what he thinks the perfect age is for women. He's already put his foot in his mouth on that one, but whatever that perfect age is for people, that's what it'll be. I don't know what it'll be, but I'm almost definitely assured it's not eight years old. I highly doubt it's 13 years old. So the, the statement that heaven is made up of children, I think, is referenced when he states that uh, in, in another part of the scripture where you need to have the faith of a child to be in heaven. And so when he's talking about of such is as the kingdom of heaven, of such are children who have childlike faith, children who have come to me in that faith, um, whether they died when they were children or got older and grew out of their childhood, heaven is full of this kind of people. Children, the childlike faith, those who, who think it's the best day ever because I spent time with Christ. These are the ones that make up heaven. These kinds of people are the ones that make up heaven. He laid his hands on them and departed then. So again, verse 15, Christ is not saying, well, me laying my hands on your child doesn't guarantee success, although... I mean, I don't know that it does. You know, God doesn't force us to make good choices. God blessing us doesn't force us to make good choices. You look at the blessings in Matthew chapter 5, just because you receive those blessings doesn't guarantee good choices. In fact, what I do find is it's your choices that result in God offering the blessings. Not necessarily the other way around, God offering the blessings, and therefore you make good choices. But Christ takes the opportunity to connect with these children in a special way connect with these children in a spiritual way, a way these children will probably never forget. If they're old enough to understand what's going on, it will probably stick with them for the rest of their life. I not only saw Jesus, but he prayed a prayer of blessing over me. Is that prayer of blessing going to be a miraculous event that binds them to righteousness? No, but it will be an event that will maybe shape the decisions they make in the future. And see, as as adults, that's our goal. It is not to bring children to church services so that children are, are bound to righteousness by what happens around them. Like they have no decision to make in the matter and, you know, they're possessed by righteous doings. That's not how it works. Our goal, our heart, my heart as a leader, as a spiritual leader, as a pastor, as a principal, as a teacher, as a father, my heart is to introduce children to Jesus in the hope that that introduction will affect their choices going forward will stick with them, so will in some way uh, shape what they do, not because it's out of their will, but because when they make choices, they now have something to remember as they make their choices. I'm not big on experience shaping the life of a believer. I believe you go down that road, you could end up in all kinds of crazy places. But I don't undervalue experience. I believe that experience is part of the Christian life. I believe that to eliminate experiences from our lives is dangerous, that God provides them. We should be glad for them. I believe experiences can shape us. I believe truth needs to ultimately guide and shape us, and the experiences kind of help bring us along the way. And just as experiences help boost you and give you the energy to go another week, and experiences help remind you of the kind of God you serve, children need the same thing. Experiences with their parents. 
You know, children crave experiences. They crave them. They will literally create experiences with their friends. And as adults, you'll look at them and say, what a bunch of goofballs. Like, what are you doing? They're just creating experiences. They're creating memories. Memories that look to you very odd. And you just shake your head and smile and say, well, as long as they're not hurting each other, whatever. They're creating memories. They're creating experiences. They need them. And so let's remember that the best person to engage in experiences with is God. Don't force righteousness on your kids. You can't. But definitely, within your ability, bring them to the righteous God. And then if you bring them to him often enough, they are bound to experience. Then the rest is in God's hands. Let's move on now to verse 16. And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? What an interesting answer that Christ gives. The answer of Christ bothered me on multiple levels when I was younger, to the, to the extent that I could not. This is, I, I said this about another passage of Scripture. This was one of them as well. I couldn't just keep ignoring this. I had to find out what is going on here because it doesn't seem to me that this answer matches the other parts of Scripture that I know. And for me, I'm not the kind of guy that can let that go. I can't just, well, that's just whatever. Move on and go with the ones that I do know. I I have to know. I have to know why Christ gave this answer. Christ does not give us the reason for his answer. So all we can do is look at the rest of Scripture and compare this text to other texts. And with the wisdom, hopefully the wisdom of God, not the wisdom of the world, hopefully paired with the wisdom of God, we can have an answer. And I'm going to come to the conclusion that I have tonight, whether you agree with me on my conclusion, is up to you, because God doesn't give us his conclusion. So you are completely in your rights coming to your own conclusion, as I did mine. We'll see what you think about my conclusion when we're done. But let's start with verse 17. First, he starts off by saying, why call me good? Now, that's not even the weird part. <laughs> he says, why call me good? He's, he's basically questioning this guy for saying to God, good master. It's like someone coming to church and saying, oh, I love my Lord Jesus. And you look at them and saying, why are you calling him Lord? Now, you might say, oh, I I get where you're going. I I see what you're doing. Yeah, I think it's kind of obvious what Christ is doing, especially with the continued statement of what he's doing. What does he say? He says, why call me good? There is none good but one that is God. So what is Christ calling this guy out on? Do you even think I'm God? See, this man is coming to Christ and saying, good master, not Messiah, not Lord Jesus, master. What that word master is referring to is like a teacher, like a Pharisee, Sadducee, a spiritual leader, a prophet, a man that is generally recognized as the voice of God, but not the Messiah. He's not giving him the title Messiah is giving them a respected title that any other, John the Baptist, uh, any variety of Pharisees would receive the same title. Christ is saying, okay, you're, you're bringing me down to the level of basically all these other guys that I've rebuked recently and will continue to rebuke. You're bringing me down to their level. Let me call you out on that. You're saying that I'm good. Who's good? No one's good. Only God is good. So, am I good? You know, it's interesting. This young man doesn't actually answer 
Christ on that first question. Christ says, why do you call me good? He says, if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. So Christ asks a question and gives an answer. The man responds to the answer of Christ, does not respond to the question of Christ, which was, why are you calling me good? Do you actually believe that I'm God? The man never tells us. Seems to me this man is confused on multiple levels. Christ calls him out on his confusion. That's important for us to know because of the answer Christ gave in verse 17. A lot of people go to church and they say, I worship God. Do you really? Who do you call God? What's your definition of God? I think that uh, God is everywhere and everyone. Oh, well, I see. So you're just making up your God. I believe God uh, loves everyone. Oh, so do I. I believe God would never judge anyone. Oh, so that's the problem. You see, this guy is creating in his head who he believes Jesus to be. And Jesus, before he answers the question, confronts the man with that assumption, saying, no, no, you don't get to do that. You've got to decide, am I God or am I not God? Make that decision. We don't know if the man made that decision or not, but we do know Christ put him in a place where he had to make the decision. Then here's the weird part. The guy says, what must I do to have eternal life, right? He says, um, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? All right. Before we look at the weirdness of Christ's answer, let's go back to the question. Did you catch what the guy said? What good thing, what good thing must I do? This man comes in with an assumption that salvation is received by what? By good works. He he just already believes that. He doesn't say, how can I be saved? As is asked by other people. What must I do? Uh, be done what must be done to be saved, or how does one get saved? How can we follow you to heaven? A variety of uh, forms of the same question. This guy's coming in already with the strong belief salvation is by works. Which work, which specific one, like above all others, is required to be saved? Christ doesn't do what I would do. I think I would do the same thing you would do. You would say, Well, wait a second. No good work gets you to heaven, right? I mean, you, in some way, that's probably your response because that's the Bible's response. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, right? Well, that was written after this time. People didn't know that uh, in the Old Testament. The just still live by faith. And by the way, we're talking about Christ here. Christ knew it. So why, why wouldn't Christ give that answer? Because Christ knows that this man already has a strong presupposition. So Christ is going to answer his question with the presupposition that the man has. Why would he do that? Obviously, Christ knows this man's heart better than we do, 2,000 years from the moment. And Christ obviously knows that to confront this man on the idea that works don't get you to heaven wasn't going to work with this guy. So Christ is going to play his game. Christ is going to confound this man with his own set of standards. He's going to let this man's logic destroy his own belief system. Why? The Bible doesn't tell us why. This is where my assumption comes in. I assume so that the man can start from nothing. He walks away considering. Now, not necessarily in a good way, but he walks away considering. We're told in verse 22 he's actually very sorrowful. 
but he is considering. Whereas before, he's very prideful. That's my impression. He's very confident in his response to Christ's response. (laughs) So let's see what it is. Christ says, verse 17, if thou wilt enter in life, keep the commandments. We, We know that's not true based off of other passages of Scripture. I've already stated Christ is playing this guy's game. This guy came in saying, what one good thing must I do to be saved? Christ is stating, well, you got to keep all the commandments. Now, technically, technically, if someone kept all the commandments, would they be saved? That depends on your theology. There are some, and I know some, that believe you're not a sinner until your first sin. That you're born sinless. And then, once you create your, you, you have your first sin, then you are a sinner. You become a sinner. I know some people who love God dearly that believe that. I'm not one of them. My theology is, according to Romans chapter 5, we are from Adam and therefore born in sin. And therefore, we sin because we are sinners. So, technically, if you kept all the commandments, would you go to heaven? No, because you're born a sinner. But let's also state this. Technically, since you're born a sinner, could you keep all the commandments? Again, no. So, you know, kind of playing with words here, Christ is basically stating, if you could keep all the commandments, sure, you could go to heaven, but Christ already knows there's no way you can because you're born a sinner. He doesn't go into that because, again, the guy's presupposition. So Christ's statement that if you, could, if you kept all the commandments, you go to heaven, would be true if it was possible. If it was possible in the sense of, you weren't a sinner. Because if you are a sinner, you can't attain this. You can't, you can't keep all the commandments. All right, let's move on. Verse 18. He said to him, which? All right, which one? This guy again saying, all right, give me the one. All right, come on, God, Christ. Or not Christ. Come on, master. Come on, teacher. I want the one. I want to know the one I got to hone in on. He says, thou shalt do no murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother. Now, these commandments, uh, you say, well, these are the ones we know, right? Well, you know there's ten commandments only, right? There's only ten commandments that a Jew had to follow, right? No, that's hundreds. I'm messing with you guys. Come on. Hundreds of, hundreds of commandments. We, we're familiar with the ten because of the manner in which they were, were spoken of and on the tablets and Moses is walking down the mountain. So being familiar with the ten, those are the ones that stick out to us. And these are from those ten. But there are hundreds of commandments, that the Jews were given and expected to follow in the Old Testament. Then he says, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Now, verse 20, The young man saith unto him, All these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? All right, remember what I said. Verse 17, Christ says, Got to keep all the commandments, knowing it's not possible. This guy's response is, Oh, I've done that. And we know that he hasn't because we know he's a sinner. And we know that sinners can't not sin. <laughs> sinners will sin. So we know that he has broken these commandments. This man is believing a lie. His religion, and it is a religion, it's not a relationship with God. His religion is one of self-righteousness. He has the strong belief that he deserves heaven because of what he's done. He's earned it. Now, instead of debating this man's beliefs, Christ, he's still not done. Christ is going to say, all right, let's play your game. And you claim that you deserve heaven. Here we go. Verse 21. 
If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell that thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. He is not saying, sell everything you have and you'll be saved. He's saying, if you make the right choices on this earth, there are rewards in heaven. Now, obviously, to gain the rewards in heaven, one has to be saved, right? But God, in other passages of Scripture, we're told about, you know, when you, when you do for the poor and the needy in God's name, God says, you've done for me, and, you know, we'll be blessed for that. So he's not saying here, sell what you have and be saved. He's saying there are rewards in heaven for those who get to heaven and have made good choices on earth. So, you want to be perfect? All right, fine. Let's play your game. Sell everything you've got. Come and follow me. Fully commit to ministry. The man responds, verse 22, going away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So you can understand my concern as I read that multiple times as a young man. And now you obviously understand where I uh, am coming from now. I've been explaining for the last 10 minutes. So I don't believe that Christ is giving us a new gospel in this passage. I believe that Christ is addressing a false gospel within the boundaries that this man set. And this man now walks away recognizing, man, guess I'm not perfect. Man, I guess I'm not self-righteous. And that, I believe, was the goal of Christ here, to get that man to that point in his life. Where does this man go from there? We'll never know. This side of heaven, anyways. It's not for us to know this side of heaven. But what an interesting way to deal with the very uh, common belief of works-based salvation. An interesting way to do it. Seeing Christ do it this way, i got to be honest, I've still never done it that way. I still just say to people, well, you're not perfect. You can't go to heaven by works. To this day, I have not, knowing that Christ used that tactic. So if someone was to use that tactic, you can't say, it'd be wrong, you're in good company. Christ did it. I will say Christ has the advantage of knowing the heart of the one he's talking to. Christ has the advantage of knowing how this tactic will play out in the man's life. My personal concern not knowing the heart or the future, that using that tactic might actually cause someone to think, oh, so if I do that, I will be saved. And then they do it. I'm like, oh, man, I you know, messed up on that one. <laughs> you know, well, actually, you can't be. You know, I'm not going to backtrack. So I'm not saying you can't use this tactic. Christ did. I would just caution you. You're not Christ. You don't know the heart. You don't know the future. And I personally, my opinion is there's some danger in going down this road not being God and knowing the end result and causing someone to think that works is the way to heaven. That's my two cents worth. I'll be happy to hear what you guys have to say. Let's move on to the Bible study. I'll end a little early tonight, and we'll talk about some of these things. So be thinking about your thoughts on that passage now. Hold on to them, write them down, and I'd love to hear them as we wrap things up here towards the end. Let's go ahead and move on to the next text. So uh, in verse 23, Then Jesus said unto his disciples, Verily I say unto you, that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And I, I actually mentioned this the other day, I think in our Wednesday night Bible study, that there's a lot of misconceptions um, about Scripture. Let me give you an example. 
years ago, not here in Connecticut. I was in a different location at that time. I was speaking with a pastor about the phrase in the book of Revelation regarding the Laodicean church. Now, as soon as you think of the Laodicean church, what phrase do you think of? What title? Lazy, sure, is one way to say it. There's another word that actually the Bible uses, lukewarm. All right, so lukewarm, yeah. I would agree. Spiritually lazy, Kim, is definitely another. You could, you could define them that way. Lukewarm is the title given to them. And so lukewarm, and then if you remember correctly, um, John, he, he writes through the inspiration of God. He writes to them, I would rather you be hot or cold. Right? But because you're lukewarm, what does God do with the lukewarm church of Laodicea? Spews them out of their mouth. So how do you interpret that text? Don't say it out loud. Think about it. In your head, think, okay, what does that mean? Lukewarm, spewed out of my mouth. I'd rather you be hot or cold. Think about maybe what's been taught you. Think about how you'd interpret it and consider what would be the end result. I was talking with the pastor years ago. This was well over 10 years ago. And we were discussing that particular text. I was a young man at the time. I was in my 20s. So I'm talking with a, with, a, with a much older pastor. I mean, when you're 20, everyone's older than you, right? All the pastors are older than you. So I, we, I was kind of getting his thoughts, getting his, his, his wisdom, but something really bothered me because the man was adamant that hot meant on fire for God and cold meant a heart of rebellion, a hard, a hard heart towards God. So then what's a lukewarm, if that's the case? Well, a lukewarm heart is one that hasn't made a decision. Like, you could go either way. You're riding, the fin- you're riding this fir- spiritual fence. You, you could be on fire for God. You could be cold towards God, but you're in the middle, and you haven't come to a decision yet. And this man's interpretation of that text was, God would rather you just make a decision. Like, literally, walk away from him or walk towards him, but do something. That God would rather you walk away from him in complete rebellion, utter wickedness, rather than ride the fence and be that lukewarm Christian that um, kind of plays both sides, you might say. You know, has a foot on both sides of the team. <laughs> Hasn't truly committed to either one. Now, that bothered me. I mean, I'm a youth pastor at this point, and I, I thought, well, that's concerning because I know most of my teens are lukewarm spiritually. My, my heart was just to like get them through the next three to four years so that when they come to 18, 19, they won't have self-destructed so much that they would make the right choice. I didn't necessarily need for them to make that choice now at 14. It's like, you know, 14 years old, make the decision, walk away from God or walk towards him. If you're not walking towards him, like don't come back to my youth group. I'd rather you not come back to my youth group than be lukewarm in my youth group. That was not my heart. I thought, I'll take my youth group lukewarm all day because I have more time with them. And more time means that eventually, I I would hope they would choose Christ. Now, got to be honest with you, I'm a little biased because I was the lukewarm teenager. So I was biased due to my own experience. There's a danger in interpreting Scripture through your experiences because your experiences are not the same as others. But I'm being transparent. My experience was I was a teenager with a foot on both sides. I didn't want to run from God completely, but nor was I running after him. I was happy to kind of float through until I turned 18. Like, literally, it was within a week of my birthday. And I was confronted with a very difficult choice, and I chose God. But I was lukewarm most of my life. 
So it bothered me as a youth pastor, this older pastor telling me, you got to choose, either rebel or run towards, but none of this floating through stuff. Did some research, and I came to a completely different conclusion. Now, that pastor's conclusion was based off of our understanding of the phrase is hot and cold as it applies to the spiritual condition in the 21st century. The idea of being on fire for the Lord, you don't see that in Scripture, that phrase, on fire for God. You don't see um, the phrase cold heart. You see hard heart, but this idea of a cold heart, that's a 21st century phraseology, you know, 21st century lingo. We're attaching our definition of words and the use of them today to how they were used thousands of years ago, and that's not fair to the text. After doing just really limited research, it didn't take me a long time, I discovered that Laodicea had multiple sources of water coming through the town. There was a hot water source. I used to live in a place called Pagosa Springs, Colorado. Pagosa Springs, I was young at the time, uh, had um, hot water, I forget what they called, springs, hot springs, hot springs, yes, thank you, hot springs. And I smelled like rotten eggs, but people would travel from all over the, the, not just the state, but the country to come, yes, the sulfur, correct, to come and just hang out in those hot springs. They would spend hundreds of dollars to be in the hot springs for a few days, you know, with the, the, the resort fee and whatever. That's on top of what it costs to get there. So hot springs are a pretty big deal. Are today, have been throughout history. You do some research on history, it's been pretty much assumed throughout the known history, hot springs have some kind of at least soothing, if not outright healing, healing towards your skin or other things, you know, it's good for you. Well, the hot springs in Laodicea, hot water flowing through, obviously had some, tor- some sort of benefit, at least to their belief, and, and held value to the Laodiceans. As Pagosa Springs brought in a lot of money, people traveled to bathe in them. <laughs> now, I don't know if I would ever drink that water, but, you know, hey, 2,000 years ago, who knew what they thought medically? Maybe they were drinking it, too. I don't know what they were doing with the hot water, but it had, it had value. Now, there was also cold springs running into and through Laodicea. Obviously, cold water has extreme value, especially to a city back then where walls actually could be the difference between life or death. Having walls wasn't enough because if 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 an opposing army just surrounded and and camped and sieged your city, you died of thirst or hunger, that's a whole other problem altogether. So having water come through your city was very valuable. That's that's on an extreme sense. How about valuable even on a daily where the women and the men didn't have to walk a mile to get water? It literally came through the town. That's the place you want to live. Hot springs for healing purposes, whatever they thought was attached to that. Cold springs for daily drinking and uh, the value that would bring to that town. Both were valuable. When you told a Laodicean, I'd rather you be hot or cold, they wouldn't say, oh, hot's good, cold's bad. They'd be thinking cold for drinking, hot for whatever else they did with it. Both were good. Both were good in different ways. Both had their own purpose. Neither one was the same. My conclusion of that text, it was years ago and still is today. That when Christ says, I'd rather you be hot or cold. He's not saying either rebel or run after me, make a choice. I believe Christ is saying, I don't need you to look like everyone else. I don't need you to be a cookie cutter, look like the pastor or his wife, Christian. I just want you to be valuable. 
I don't want you to be lukewarm floating through life. The idea of lukewarm, I do believe, again, if we're talking about water, spewing out of your mouth, that's pretty obvious, that illustration, that if you drink, if you have the option of cold water and you're drinking like warm water, that's not good. You're going to spit it out. Christ says, I'll spew you out of my mouth. There, warm water has little value unless you're dying of thirst, right? You'll drink whatever if you're dying of thirst. You'll drink muddy, dirty, nasty water if you're dying of thirst. Christ isn't dying of thirst. Christ owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Christ doesn't need us. He's not desperate. Therefore, he's looking for value. Not just those who say, hey, God, I'm kind of on your side, kind of on uh, someone else's side. I'm not really going to be valuable to you either way, hot or cold. You know, take me as I am and just be happy you got me. Christ is like, you kidding? (laughs) Make a decision. Be valuable. I don't mind you looking different than the other Christians, but bring some value to my kingdom. By the way, that matches a whole lot better with the statements Christ made when he said, if, if, you, if you look back on the plow, you, you, you're not worthy to follow me. If, if you want to go and spend time with your father who's dying until he dies, you're not worthy to follow me. If you're not willing to pick up your cross, you're not worthy to follow me. That pairs well with the other statements of ministry. That, you got to be committed. Bring value to the kingdom. Now, you can tell me your thoughts on that one at the end of our lesson today as well. So now you got two major texts to discuss with me. I'm hoping that we can spur on a conversation tonight. Now let's go to this text, referring to the um, statement Christ needs about the camel going through the eye of the needle. So obviously, in the 21st century, you are needle-thinking, uh, sewing needle. And you're thinking, there's no way any animal at all outside of bacteria is getting through the eye of a sewing needle, which means Christ is saying it's impossible for the rich to be saved, outside of a miracle where God makes the sewing needle really big or, you know, Ant-Man's the camel and they go to, you know, small size and walk through the needle, whatever. Outside of that, it's not happening. Uh, No, the eye of the needle, if you do, again, do some research, is referring to a gate. It was called the eye of a needle because it was so small, and camels had to go on their knees, on their front knee, to walk through. They had to stoop down really low. It required effort for the camel driver to get them through. They couldn't just walk through normally. Could a camel get through that particular gate? Yes, but it was not designed for camels. Kind of like the bridges on, on Route 15, right? Where They're not designed for massive trucks. And uh, you see what happens sometimes when those trucks drive through. I still have a little bit of uh, PTSD when I drive under those bridges because 10 years ago, well, 10 and a half now, I was driving up here with my wife and my children. And this is the first time I'd ever been to New England driving because the last time I'd been to New England and Connecticut, I flew up here as a young college student interning. Certainly was not driving a massive U-Haul, which was the largest one, 22, 24 foot, whatever that is, with a trailer attached to the back and my wife hugging the trailer like it was life or death. And I had never driven ever in my life on a road that had short bridges. I didn't know they existed. I mean, I grew up in California. I lived in Florida, you know, Virginia. Those short bridges, I'd never had come across them before. So I'm driving this massive U-Haul, the longest and the largest, and I'm following my GPS. My GPS takes me from Virginia up to New York City. That was a trip in and of itself. We went over Brooklyn Bridge twice. (laughs) <laughs> because the GPS was taking me on side roads. And I got off the side, on the side, I don't, it must have been traffic or something to take me on a side road. And I'm driving on these side roads. 
And I've got my wife behind me calling me saying, Russ, are you sure you're going the right way? Don't lose me, because if you lose me, you'll never find me. It was night, and we're driving through Brooklyn on the side roads. My wife was not overly thrilled about that. I said, all right, honey, we'll go back on the, the main road and get our bearings. Well, it took us across the bridge again. We're literally, I'm like, we've done this. I've never driven across the Brooklyn Bridge. I got to do it twice that day. And then we turned around and came back. So then after the Brooklyn Bridge, I finally figured out, I looked at my map and said, oh, here's the place, you know, Route 15. I got to get on this. So I, I made sure I didn't get off the side road it happened before. Got on Route 15. Smooth sailing. The map shows me it, go, it takes us all the way to Meriden. Praise the Lord. The hardest is behind us. And then I start going under these bridges. And I thought, that one was really close. And, and then I went under another one, and they got smaller. I literally was driving in the middle of the road to get through the highest part of the bridge. I thought, this is really weird that these bridges are so small. And the pastor at that time, Pastor Axon, called me, said, hey, Russ, you know, everything going all right? I said, yeah, it's great. I'm on Route 15. He said, what are you doing on Route 15? I said, this is the quickest way. He says, you're driving a U-Haul. I said, yeah. He says, get off right now. You're going to get stuck under one of those bridges. And he said, didn't you see the signs? I said, what signs? I've been making sure my wife's been following me the whole time. I've been looking at my rear view mirror the whole time. I've been looking at any signs, the side view mirror. And he says, there's signs that say no commercial vehicles. And I thought, well, I wouldn't have known anyways. I'm, not, I'm driving a U-Haul. I wouldn't have known this is a commercial vehicle. Obviously, I know now. I got off and veered back to whatever interstate. I forget which one it was that was closest to me at the time. And everything was good. By the grace of God, I did not become that meme on Route 15. The point is, this gate would be similar to that. Could you drive through it? Yes, it'd be extremely difficult. And uh, it can be done. But larger vehicles stay away. Camels were pretty much just rerouted to other gates. Unless you had a camel that was really well-trained. And someone with a lot of patience. And they could convince the gatekeeper to let him through. Then they walk through. Most camels were rerouted to another gate in the city. When Christ is referring to a rich man being saved, he's not saying it's impossible. He's saying most aren't willing to do it. Now, does that mean that a rich person has to become poor in order to be saved? Obviously not. But... Riches and the love of money is defined in the word of God as what? The root of all evil. It would include a lot of things, obviously. Pride and selfishness, greed, lust, all these things are included in that. But it's the root of all evil. It's kind of the, what spurs on everything else. The root of all evil. So it's not that being rich keeps you from being saved. But if you have given yourself wholly over to the root of all evil, then it's going to be really hard to come to that point of repentance, recognizing you need someone other than you, that you are not self-sufficient because riches can lie to you and make you think that you are. Riches can lie to you and make you think you can buy yourself out of any problem, even the problem of sin. Well, how does one buy themselves out of the problem of sin? Talk to any number of TV evangelists, and they'll be happy to tell you how your riches can buy them out of hell. Talk to any number of religious leaders, and they'll be happy to help you buy yourself out of hell. There's literally a historical reference to this happening within the Catholic Church, where people were literally in the streets stating 
As soon as we receive your money, your loved one is sent to paradise immediately. You can buy your other people out of hell, let alone yourself. Indulgences, they were called. Oh, yeah, so the world has definitely tried to get rich people to buy themselves out of hell. And a lot of rich folks have bought that lie. Unfortunately, only to discover it too late. We're told of the story of the rich man and Lazarus. How interesting that Christ told us a story of a rich man who went to hell. I'm not saying all rich people go to hell. I'm saying the rich need to recognize their money won't get them to heaven. Let's go on to uh, verse 25. When his disciples heard it, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, Who then can be saved? Isn't that interesting? The disciples assumed that the easiest way to be saved was to be rich. That the ones who deserved heaven more than most were the rich. That the ones first in line to heaven were the rich. If the rich can't be saved, who could be saved? That's so different from our way of thinking today, right? Like our culture, I I think as a whole, wouldn't be thinking the rich are first in line to heaven. We just wouldn't think that. Whether you have anything against the rich or not, whether you are rich or not, I don't think that you would be thinking that. In this culture, they did. Why? Because in this culture, they were given the best seats at the wedding party. In this culture, they were probably given the best seats um, anywhere, in the religious gatherings, the festivals, the celebrations. They were revered in the community. And so the disciples are thinking, well, the rich are the best among us. The rich represent our elite. (laughs) If the elite can't get to heaven, who's going to heaven? So what's the problem here? The problem is the disciples are defining the best among us with what the Bible calls as unrighteous mammon. I know that's an old term. The disciples were defining the best among them by those who've achieved the best of the world. If they got the best in this world, surely they'll have the best of the next world. And Christ says the opposite. He says, if you want to live in this life, you're going to die in the next dying, rejecting what this life has to offer, that's when you live in the next. Christ says, choose your master. Choose what this world offers or choose what I offer. You can't have both. You can't have two masters. You're going to serve only one. The disciples are confused on what to find the best. Verse 26, but Jesus beheld them and said unto them, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. It's possible for someone to change their mind about self-righteousness. It's possible for someone to change their mind about being self-sufficient by the things they've gained in this life, prestige, power, money. It's possible. It's only possible with God. On our own, we're not coming to that conclusion. With God, we can come to that conclusion. Verse 27, Then answered Peter and said unto him, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have, therefore? (laughs) Oh, Peter, Peter. Gotta love the guy. Christ rebukes him often. It's interesting that Christ does not rebuke him here. You know what I found? It is so easy to always rebuke the bold, the young, and the inexperienced. Especially when all three are paired in one person. (laughs) Always so easy to find something to rebuke on a regular basis. When you do that, you lose them. You will not keep them. 
the bold, the young, the inexperienced, all three together, young and experienced, often go together. When they're really bold, that can be a, a headache for those who are not all three. If all you do is rebuke them, you will lose them. They'll be your child, a student, a church member. You'll lose them. doesn't matter. You'll lose your own child if all you do is rebuke them all the time. And I chuckle as, as Peter says this. I mean, I, it's like he's opening himself up for rebuke. Peter, you're giving, it's like, it's a, it's a softball pitch, man. Home run. Let's nail that thing over the fence. Another chance for rebuke. Christ doesn't always rebuke Peter. Why? Because Christ doesn't want to lose Peter. Christ rebukes him. And the times that are needed, Christ, I, in my opinion, takes many opportunities to praise Peter, like overpraise Peter, probably because of the over-rebuke Peter receives. <laughs> And then sometimes when Peter deserves rebuke, Christ doesn't necessarily praise him or rebuke him. He just gives him truth and treats the question like a question and gives the answer without spite, animosity, or judgment attached. What a valuable lesson for our own interpersonal relationships. If all you do is rebuke, you will be a very lonely person. Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the... In the Regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And every one that hath forsaken houses, brothers, sisters, father, mother, wife, children, lands, for my name's sake, shall receive an hundredfold, and shall inherit everlasting life. But many that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. He's saying, look, there are rewards. There are, there are rewards for those who, in not just salvation, but in service, have chosen a life of sacrifice for me. I will reward them. Not just you, Peter. You're not the only one. Many others have and many others will. And there are rewards for those who choose to sacrifice on my behalf. You know what I find? The men and women that I've known who sacrifice the most for God, I am convinced they aren't doing it for any reward. Convinced of that. The conversations I've had with them, the life that I've seen, I have yet to meet one who's truly living a life of sacrifice for some idea of a reward they're going to get in heaven. They're doing it for a godly love. The reward we get, for me, isn't even a motivation. It's not for the ones I've met. It's nice to know that God appreciates, but honestly, the greatest reward I could receive are the souls of the lost coming to him. And that has been the case for those that I've known up to this point. Let's go ahead and end tonight and have that conversation, hopefully about the things you've been pondering for the last 45 minutes. If you're joining us, we hope to see you again next Wednesday as we pick up right here in Matthew where we left off. Um, Have a good night.